CSN International presents To Every Man an Answer, the live Bible answer program that equips you to give a reason for the hope that lies within you. If you have a question on the Bible or the Christian faith, you can call us at 1 888 827 5276. That's 1 888 Ask CSN. Now let's get things started. Here's today's host. Well, hi, and welcome to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer as we begin another week answering your questions on the Bible and the Christian faith and current events. And I'm Scott Parker in for Mike Kessler today, and I'm the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Festus, Missouri, and that's just south of the great city of St. Louis. I'm also the Bible teacher on A Word for the Church, which is heard every Saturday at 10 a.m. Central Time and Sundays at 6 p.m. Central Time right here on the CSN Radio Network. And with me today here on the program is the pastor of Calvary South OC in sunny Southern California, and that is John Randall. John, thanks for being on with us today. Oh, thank you so much, Scott. It's a blessing to be here on a Monday and uh, excited for what the Lord has for us on the program. It's a blessing to meet you and get to serve with you today. John, the feelings are uh, mutual and likewise, and so God bless you. Thanks for taking your time to join us today uh, on short notice. We really appreciate that. And uh, so what is going on at your church right now there in uh, in the OC? What's, what's happening? What's the Lord doing? Well, good things. You know, I think for most churches, probably many of our listeners right now entering into, we say it's the most wonderful time of the year, but it's also, it seems to be in churches, the busiest time of the year. <laughs> You always try to schedule it and you always try to like brace yourself for impact, but it just comes full steam ahead. So I'm sure like most churches, there's a lot of things going on around the holiday season. And, and, you know, Scott, we're hoping that it seems like a lot of people will come to church during Christmas. Maybe they feel Mm -hmm. obligated or check a box. Um, But it's always been our prayer that every time people come through the door, um, that they would hear the gospel and be able to respond to the greatest gift ever given. So that's really what we're praying about, especially this month of December. Yeah, that's exactly right, John. And uh, so let me ask you this. So during this time of the year, are you teaching anything pertinent to the season right now? Well, that's a really good question. I just, you know, we've been on Sunday mornings, we've been going through the epistle to the Romans and it mm-hmm. has been an amazing time, uh, transformative really for us as a church, for me personally, but, you know, now with just a few weeks out, the Lord kind of laid uh, a, a series on my heart uh, entitled Behold the King. And so the next couple of weeks leading up to Christmas, um, I'm going to be talking about that. And one of the things we're going to consider is beholding the king in prophecy. You know, going back and looking at all those spots throughout the Old Testament that pointed to the king that would come and rule and reign. And then we're going to talk about beholding the king in the in the provision and the plan in which the time in which he came. So I'm kind of, you know, I'm in the midst of it right now, you know, just thinking it through and trying to put, you know, connect the dots, but yeah. we're on our way. That sounds awesome. Actually, I did that same thing last year. Last year we went through, took time and went through Old Testament prophecies uh, concerning Jesus first coming. And it was just a blessing to the congregation and what we're doing this year. So right now on Sunday mornings, we're going through the book of Revelation mm-hmm. and we're right in the middle of the six seal or the seven seals. And so we're taking a break there. Yeah. Uh, which is quite a change. It's quite a change going from the seal judgments, uh, you know, to the incarnation. <laughs> so, right. Right. Uh, but right now we're teaching through uh, Luke chapter one and two and just looking at uh, Christmas according to Luke. And so, and John, if uh, folks wanted to find you there, 
in the OC? How can they do that? How about a website and some information about your church? Yeah, certainly. You could go to calvarysouthoc.com. Uh, you could find us on Instagram, Calvary South OC. You could find us on Facebook, Calvary South OC. Personally, John P. Randall on Instagram. Um, and again, the church is also on there as well. But that's a great way to connect and look forward to, to hearing from you guys and uh, in the days ahead. Awesome. Well, thanks for that information. And uh, if you want more information about our church as well, you can go online to ccfestus.com. That's CC is in Calvary Chapel, Festus, F-E-S-T-U-S, just like the Festus in the Bible, and uh, .com, and that will give you all the info about our church as well. So we would like to answer your questions on the Bible, the Christian faith, current events, whatever you have questions about, and you can do that by giving us a call at 888 888- 827-5276. That's 8888-ASK-CSN. And again, that translates out to 88, I'm sorry, 888-827-5276. And so right now we have Teresa on the line and she is from Idaho. And so Teresa, welcome to, to Every Man and Answer. Hi there. Can you hear me? We can. Hello. Okay. Yes, we Hi. can hear you. Uh, so, blessings, guys. Hey, so my husband was reading in Ezekiel 44, and it's 19 where they're going into the temple, and they've got instructions about wearing, they can't wear wool, they got to wear linen. And then our question was, this is the New Living Translation, when they're coming out, it says that they must leave them in the sacred rooms and put on other clothes so that they do not endanger anyone by transmitting holiness to them through this clothing. What What is that? I mean, tr- Gotcha. Well, Teresa, that is a great question. So, Pastor John, what is all this about uh, taking off these garments and and such there uh, concerning uh, the worship and everything in the temple? Well, it's interesting because when you go back and you look at when God designed the sacrificial system and he puts the Levites in place who would serve on behalf of the people and they would prepare the sacrifices, and then you have the high priest who would offer the sacrifices and so forth, that there were certain garments. It's interesting because I was reading through recently in my own devotional time, these garments that were made specifically for certain times. If you went into the holy place, you wore these specific garments. If you went into this area, you you wore these garments. But when you came out from ministering in that place, these garments of ministry were to be set aside. In other words, these particular robes and or garments were used for a specific purpose in a specific place, and they were not to be taken out from that place. And that was just God's design. They were sacred. They were consecrated. They were holy. They were set apart for a specific purpose. And I believe that that's what it's referring to there uh, in Ezekiel. And and you see it back, you know, in, in Leviticus, you see it in Numbers, you see it as God is getting all of this in order and preparing the people that these were the garments that they wore. And I love, you know what I love about that, uh, Scott, when you read it, mm-hmm. it says that they are garments for ministry. And I think, mm-hmm. wow, it reminds me in a New Testament application of, you know what? We need to put on the Lord Jesus Christ. We are clothed with his righteousness as we minister, garments of ministry. I just really love that. Yeah, exactly. You know, John, just what you were saying there too, it's, it's, that's, that is only when we're fit to minister to people. Is whenever we are strong in the grace of God, in the righteousness that is ours through faith in Jesus Christ, when we are, when we, when we know that we are clothed 
with the robes of righteousness that are ours through faith in Christ, then and only then are we fit then to take that gospel and that good news and minister to other people. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's people who know their sins have been forgiven, uh, who have the confidence uh, to take the gospel to other people and to share it with them. And uh, thank God we know that uh, we're right with God because of our faith in what Jesus has done for us and his righteousness is a gift to us. And it's also kind of interesting, too, when you go back there, uh, Teresa, in the Old Testament, in, in the law, you'll find out that, uh, you know, the priests, they were, uh, you mentioned, you know, the the fact of linen, uh, that they were to, that their garments were to be linen and not wool. And I think that's interesting, too, because uh, the linen garments would have been a lot lighter and the wool garments would have been heavier and would have caused perspiration, you know. And the one thing the Lord didn't want is he didn't want the priests uh, in, the, you know, in the in the temple, in the tabernacle, in the holy place, and especially the high priest in the, in the holy of holies, uh, coming in there on their own efforts, their own perspiration, their own flesh and their own work. He wanted them to come in. Uh, you know, clothed in those linens, uh, which again uh, becomes a picture of the beautiful righteousness of Jesus, those those beautiful white linens. And so anyway, so Teresa, does that help at all? <laughs> a little bit. But our the main question is, is what it was trans not to transmit holiness to the people. Yeah, well, again, you know, the garments were for the priest to wear while they were in the presence of the Lord. And they were, as John said, they were specific garments for them to wear as they ministered to the Lord. Um, so it's interesting uh, because um, the priest would be going in, as they go into the temple, they would be going into the presence of God. If you remember, maybe this would kind of help a little bit. You, do you remember, uh, you know, when Moses was on Mount Sinai and he was receiving the law. And then when he comes down from, from meeting with the Lord, uh, you know, the glory from, from God shown, you know, was showing upon him, uh, to where he had to wear a veil, uh, because the people couldn't handle it. So what's interesting is there's, it's kind of this idea that the only people that could handle the manifest presence of God, uh, and could handle that kind of holiness uh, were, were the people that God permitted into his presence, which was the priests. And that's why he had them again to wear those special garments. So, um, you know, it's, it's really interesting because with Israel, uh, you know, in, in the wilderness, uh, and then in the temple, when it was first built, there was this understanding of, of the presence of God being there in a real way. And just like God told Moses to tell the people when he gave him the law on, si on Mount Sinai, tell the people not to come to the mountain because they can't touch this or be around this. So it was, it was this idea uh, that God is holy and he's so holy that only those who are clothed in these linens could come before his presence. And so that's why they were not to wear those outside to the people because it would be it would be kind of like the idea of transferring that holiness from from God's presence now to the people who uh I shouldn't say not fit but aren't prepared uh for that kind of exchange. So does it does that make sense? I was going to yeah. say one thing. Oh, go ahead, John. That you know, I think it has to do with translation too. You read I believe mm -hmm. you said New Living Translation when you read out of the NKJV translation or other translations, you'll see that it says 
they're to, they're put on other garments and in their holy garments, they shall not sanctify the people. In other words, um, Teresa, there were garments that were used in the holy place in that ministry. And then there were other garments that were worn to minister, to sanctify the people. And that was God's design. And so to sanctify, to set apart, there were certain garments for the, the holiest of all places. And then there was certain garments that were worn when they would minister to the people. And, and think about it. When these people would bring sacrifices, Scott, I mean, this was a bloody work. I mean, they were sacrificing, oh, yeah. they were offering things. I mean, you don't take the, the linen, beautiful, white priestly garments and start sacrificing lambs and bullock and oxen out there with the people at the brazen altar. You, you need to change your clothes because for one thing, it would ruin them. And so there was a specific purpose in each location of the tabernacle, eventually in the temple as well. So Teresa, does it help? So, yeah, yeah, it does. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you so much for the question. Thanks for calling. And if you would stay on the line and the folks at CSN there, I'm sure have got some uh, good things they would like to send out to you as well. So thanks for the call. And again, if you have a Bible question, we'd love to uh, take an attempt to answer it for you. And you can give us a call at 8888-ASK-CSN. Again, that's 888-827-5276, and we will try our best to get you on the program today. And now let's go to Audrey in Dallas, Texas. Audrey, welcome to To Every Man and Answer. Uh, thank you. I have a question about spiritual warfare. In the book of Job, Satan only talked to God. He never had a conversation with Job. Why do we as Christians call it spiritual warfare? Is it really such a thing as spiritual warfare? If Satan was defeated by Jesus, then how could we have spiritual warfare if we are living in a victorious lifestyle? Okay, John. Well, that's a great question. I think, you know, as a Christian, um, the Bible does tell us that we are in a spiritual battle. In fact, if you go to the book of Ephesians in chapter six, Paul talks about that we are engaged in a spiritual battle against Principal, not against flesh and blood. You remember he said that, but against principalities and powers and rulers of darkness and these places. And there is an all out warfare against God's people. I remember reading at one point, one man commenting that for the believer, we are caught between heaven and hell and there is a battle going on and waging war for the souls of men and women. And so, yes, Satan was defeated in the sense that he was defeated when Jesus went to the cross. He conquered Satan. He conquered sin. He conquered death. But for the present time, he is still attacking God's people. Now, we know in the future that his uh, the warfare is going to end at some point. But right now, we're in the midst of a spiritual battle. And yet, even though we are in a battle, we do have victory over the enemy through Jesus Christ. We're not fighting for the victory. We're fighting from victory. But spiritual warfare is definitely a part of the Christian life. Yeah, exactly. And Audrey, it's interesting too, because when you come to the book of Revelation, um, it's very interesting because when you uh, read in Revelation chapter 5, uh, the, the the Bible tells us, and John writes you know, what he sees, and what he sees there at the throne of God is uh, uh, the lion of the tribe of Judah. Of course, we know this is Jesus, uh, but he's also seen there as the lamb that was slain for the found, uh, from the foundation of the world, uh, and his his you know giving his life uh, in order to uh, purchase salvation for all people. And that's why it says there in Revelation five that uh, 
what John sees is he sees people from every tribe, every tongue, and every nation there are gathered gathered around God's throne. And this is after, and the the, the, John, the the scene that John is seeing there is after the rapture of the church. But then what's interesting is, as as John's seeing all this, uh, right, I'm sorry, right before he sees all this, he actually sees in the hand of God um, a scroll. And the scroll is believed by most Bible scholars to be the title deed to the earth. And what's interesting is John starts to weep because there's no one who can take the scroll and open it and loosen its seals because it has seven seals on it. Well, those seals uh, are, are are representative of God's judgments that are, are to be poured out upon the earth. But at the same time, the only person who can pour out that judgment upon the earth um, is is the one who actually owns the earth. And so what's interesting is as you get into the book of Revelation, it ends up being the central figure of the book of Revelation is Jesus Christ himself. It's the revelation of Jesus, okay? And what's interesting about all this, as the book of Revelation starts to unfold from that point, what you see Jesus doing in pouring out judgments upon the earth during what's called the the tribulation period, what Jesus is doing is, number one, he's, he's judging mankind who have rejected him and rejected the truth. But at the same time, what he's also doing is he's taking back what was his. So Jesus himself, God and and his son, Jesus, Jesus is the rightful owner of the earth and of mankind by right of creation because he created us. He made us. But because man listened to Satan and fell into sin, the dominion that man was given by God over the earth was was transferred or it was given over to Satan. And that's why when you read in the New Testament, you see things like Satan's the prince of the power of the air. Uh, he's the God, little G, the God of this world and, and such like that. Well, what's interesting is uh, in, in Revelation, as it begins to unfold, what we see is the only one who is worthy to take that scroll and is able to pour out these judgments uh, is the one literally who is the owner of the earth. Well, Jesus is the owner of earth, owner of the earth by the, by, by the right of creation because he created mankind and mankind, uh, sinned against God. We turned away from him. We turned to Satan, um, you know, and, and, and believed his lie and all of mankind's in sin. But when Jesus came, what Jesus did, through going to the cross is he redeemed mankind, but he not only redeemed mankind, he redeemed all creation, including the earth. And so what's important about that scroll, Jesus opening that scroll is in pouring out those judgments on the earth during the tribulation, he's actually taking back the earth and mankind whom he created for himself and whom he purchased through the cross, through him dying on the cross. And so it's interesting because Paul tells us in the book of Colossians that it was through Jesus' death that what he did is he nailed to the cross all of the commandments and all of the ordinances that were against us, all the all the laws of God that, that we broke. And what's interesting is it tells us that Jesus triumphed and, and made a literally made a triumphal parade uh displaying and showing his 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 victory. Over Satan and over, uh, you know, the, 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 the demonic realm, 
uh, through what he did on the cross, through going to the cross for us. And so Satan is defeated. Jesus defeated him at the cross when he died for us and he rose again. But when you read the book of Revelation, that's all about Jesus. What he's doing now is he's reclaiming what is already his by right of creation and by right of redemption. And so that's why you see when Jesus returns the second time at the end of the book of Revelation, you see what's going to happen as Jesus returns, sets up his kingdom on earth for a thousand years. Satan then is going to be bound. He's going to be taken taken and thrown into the abyss, into the pit, and be bound for those thousand years. Uh, at the end, he's loose for just a little while, and th- there's a purpose to that, which we won't get into. But uh, but then finally, after that's over, uh, you know, Jesus literally is going to uh, condemn Satan uh, to the lake of fire uh, forever. And so there's there is coming a time when all of this spiritual warfare, as you and I know it now, is going to end. And really, as you read the book of Revelation, that's how it all kind of plays out. So the, the the second coming of Jesus is very important in the sense that when Jesus comes, he's going to rightfully take back possession of what is his uh, because he's the creator of it. And he's also the one who died to redeem it and to pay the price, you know, for our salvation and the and the price uh, for creation. And so until then, until that time, you know, Satan is still loose upon the earth. Uh, you know, you mentioned the book of Job. We see that in the book of Job, and we also see it, you know, again, uh, in Ephesians chapter, uh, two, when Paul mentions, you know, Satan as the, as the prince of the power of the air, he is still working, uh, and he is loose, you know, and he's, he's alive and well right now, uh, you know, tempting the believers and, and, and trying to, uh, lead us into sin and lead us away from the, away from the Lord. But I love what John says in first John. He tells us, uh, that greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. So, uh, one day, uh, what's going to happen, Audrey, is all this is going to come to an end when Jesus returns. So does all that help you? Yeah. Yeah. Well, which, yeah, you explained that really well and I appreciate it. But we as Christians, every time we go through a hard time, a difficult situation, we always mm-hmm. rebuke and say, no, we have these decrees that we command Satan to leave and get out of our business or our lives or whatever. But if God is bringing the warfare, then are we rebuking the wrong person because God is bringing the warfare? There is no one in the New Testament that's had a conversation with Satan. Uh, I don't think Satan comes to us directly. I think he sends his spirits. But again, though, if we have been given everything in authority to re, uh, to live a good life, and then why are we as Christians always rebuking uh, Satan when God could be really sending us the spiritual warfare? Well, you know what, Audrey? I have the same question. Why would we continue to rebuke Satan when the Bible actually tells us the way that we that the way that we deal with Satan? Uh, you'll find uh, in the in the Epistle to James, uh, James or, or that James wrote. James actually told us that when it comes to dealing with the devil as a Christian, okay, uh, the Bible the Bible doesn't tell us anywhere that when we're tempted by sin. Uh, by the devil or, you know, he's, he's working circumstances against us, you know, in spiritual warfare. The Bible nowhere tells us to rebuke him. What the Bible says is this. It tells us, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. And what's interesting is if you go back, uh, to Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four, where Jesus was tempted by the devil himself, 
That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus submitted himself completely to God the Father in Matthew chapter 3 by being baptized. Then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. That's interesting, led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted of the devil. And when the devil tempted him, after Jesus submitted himself completely to his Father, then Jesus resisted Satan's temptations, not through rebuking him and telling him to leave, but what he did is he answered Satan's temptations with the word of God. He says, I will not be tempted or do what Satan's tempted me to do because the Bible says this. And he answered Satan's temptations and all of Satan's, everything Satan threw at him with scripture. And then if you keep reading in Matthew chapter four, after he was tempted three times and Jesus answered Satan's temptations with the word of God, what happens? What happened is the Bible tells us that then Satan left him. And that's the same, that's what Jesus modeled for us. And that's the same pattern we see from Jesus' brother, James, when James writes to us. And when it comes to temptation or dealing with the devil, the way to do that is not to try to rebuke him. Cause I tell you, you rebuke him all day long. And you know what? He's not going to go anywhere. He's still there and he, he keeps coming. But the way to defeat him is to submit ourselves to God and his lordship, the lordship of Jesus Christ, being obedient to his word, and then resist the devil by, by, as I said, being obedient to his word. And then the promise is the devil will leave us and and uh, he will flee. So, John, do you have anything else you want to mention on this? I'm reminded of what Martin Luther said. He said, when Satan comes knocking on my door, I just say, Jesus, it's for you. And I think that's the best way. Resist him. Allow the Lord to deal with the devil. You don't have to pray against the devil. Listen, let let the yeah. Lord deal with him. Pray to Jesus and let Jesus deal with him. He's a defeated foe. And uh, give less time to Satan and more time to Jesus as it relates to spiritual warfare. And that's where the victory's at. Amen. Yes, Jesus has already given us the victory. As John said earlier, you know, we fight from victory, not for victory. And uh, we need to stand firm uh, in what Jesus has done for us. But I think it's interesting that, uh, you know, James uh, taking a cue from from Jesus there gives us exactly the way to deal with the devil. And uh, it's not by continually trying to to speak to him. Um, you know, or try to rebuke him. It's, it's again, by submitting to the Lord, uh, submitting to his lordship, being obedient to his word, knowing his word, being obedient to that, and then Satan will eventually leave. So, Audrey, does that help you out? Yes, thank you so much. And I think you've helped a lot of people out because during this holiday season is when we get most of the depression and suicides and loneliness yes. and people are constantly in warfare and then not everything is a warfare. And I think sometimes when God is trying to chasten us and get us to make corrections, we call it spiritual warfare. Yeah, exactly. Well, Audrey, thanks so much for the call. And if you would stay on the line and the folks there at CSN have some uh, things they would love to send to you. And we're coming up on a break. And so we'll be back with the second half of To Every Man and Answer after these messages. CSN. So right now may be the perfect time for you to rethink how you pay for healthcare. And here's why. Not only is it open enrollment for a lot of people, it's also a time you can join MediShare and save even more than usual. And it's true. The typical family switching to MediShare saves 500 bucks or more a month, which is obviously huge for a lot of people. But what's more, they like it. MediShare has double the customer satisfaction rate compared to health insurance. Double. There are 400,000 members. They've shared over $4 billion in medical bills, and it really is a great community, too. People encourage and pray for each other. And here's the thing. If you join MediShare Complete right now, 
They'll waive your new member fees and you'll save an additional 10% off all of 2023. That's right. No fee to join, 10% off every month of next year, but it's a very limited time offer. You have to sign up before December 31st. Great savings, great health care. Find out more. Call now, 855-91-BIBLE. That's 855-91-BIBLE, 855-91-BIBLE. As the days grow darker, children are under more attack than ever, and it starts at conception. Sadly, one in five pregnancies will end in abortion. But in the midst of this awful tragedy, there is something you can do about it. Preborn Pregnancy Clinic's mission is to equip pregnancy centers nationwide to help save babies' lives and souls. And every day, preborn clinics rescue 150 babies' lives by introducing mothers to their babies on ultrasound. That ultrasound changed everything for me. It really did. That made it all worthwhile to know that I was going to have a little blessing. And when she got here, it was just, oh my gosh. Preborn clinics are the largest provider of free ultrasounds in the country, introducing moms to their preborn babies. To learn how you can help rescue a baby's life, go to preborn.com. That's preborn.com. Or call 855-668-BABY. That's 855-668-BABY. All gifts are tax deductible. Well, welcome back to Monday's edition of To Every Man and Answer. I'm Scott Parker, the pastor of Calvary Chapel in Festus, Missouri. It's great to be with you today. And with me here on Monday is Pastor John Randall of Calvary South OC in Southern California. And so it's great to be with you. And again, if you would like to give us a call, if you have a Bible question or a question on the Christian faith or current events, Anything that you would like to have an answer on from Scripture, we will do our best to give that to you. And you can give us a call at 8888-ASK-CSN. That's 888-827-5276. We have some lines open. You can give us a call, and we can get you right on here on this Monday. And so let's go ahead now and go back to the phones. And we have Kay from Fort Worth, Texas. Kay, welcome to To Every Man and Answer. Thank you. Thank you very much. Mm-hmm. How can we help you? How can we help you? Uh, yes. I'm calling to ask if there are uh, any scriptures that um, explain, you know, that young children and those under the age of accountability, have, when they pass away, they go on into eternity to be with the Lord. But when the Lord sets up his kingdom, um, will those babies become adults? And if so, about what age will they be? About the age that Jesus was when he uh, was crucified and rose from the dead? Well, that is a great question, Kay. And so, Pastor John, um, is there anything in Scripture that gives us, uh, you know, an idea concerning uh, this issue that she's talking about? It's a great question that you asked, Mm -hmm. Kay. And I want to preface my response by saying there are certain things that the Bible doesn't say and we're left to um, try to find scripture that would give us an indication of uh, what's what is God's design. So sometimes when the Bible is silent, we're silent because we don't know the answer. But I, I do think there is some indication. I was thinking about 
uh, in Second Samuel, Second Samuel chapter twelve. That's it. Second Samuel chapter twelve. When David had sinned, you remember with Bathsheba, and Bathsheba was found to be pregnant, and David. Finally, he was confronted with his sin. He repented of it. I'm sure you're familiar with the story. And Nathan confronted him. And David, when he was confronted, he repented. And then the Lord had told him that the child was going to pass away. David began to fast and he waited and he prayed and he prayed. And eventually, as the Lord said, the baby did not make it. And David rose from his fast and he began to eat. His servants then came to him and they were surprised that he was now eating. And this was David's response. He said to them in verse 22, while the child was alive, I fasted and wept for I said, who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? And then verse 23, he said, but now he is dead. Why should I fast? And then he said this, can I bring him back? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. There seems to be an indication David was aware of the fact that there is life, obviously, after death, and that he would go to be with that child. Now, is that a proof text for for what you're asking? Not necessarily, but I do think um, in light of the rest of the revelation of Scripture that God is gracious, and if a child never had the opportunity to... Um, didn't know his right hand from his left, didn't didn't have the opportunity to respond to Christ. Jesus is the judge and he is a gracious and merciful and just judge. Whatever he decides uh, on that day will be right. And we will say yes and amen and hallelujah to his decision. That's his place. But the other question you ask concerning, well, what age will they be? I really don't know. That is a really good question. And um I'm I'm curious to see uh, what Scott has to say on that one. That's that's one I thought. Man, that is a really good question. I've never really thought about that. That is, yeah. And John, that was that's a great scripture you brought up too, because it, it it definitely makes the case, um, you know, that when a child dies uh, and leaves this world, that they're with the Lord. You know, when it comes to this issue we're talking about here, and uh, great scripture to go to, and and Kay. So here, here's a couple of thoughts that come to my mind. Um, number one, I would think of this. I would think of, of, of when Jesus took little children's in, children into his arms and he blessed them. And he said this, he said, you know, the kingdom of heaven, or I'm sorry, the, yeah, the kingdom of heaven or his kingdom is for such as these, speaking of the children. So th- that right there is going to tell me that, uh, you know, children um, that, uh, you know, left this earth, um you know, at, at an early age like that as a child, um, that they'll be in the Lord's kingdom because he said, he said the kingdom is for them. Um, so I think that's one scripture we can look at in, in the gospels when Jesus was referring to the children. Uh, another thing that I would say would be this would be that when we're talking about Jesus kingdom on earth, the millennial reign, when he rules and reigns for a thousand years after he comes the second time, um, when Jesus comes and, and you and you read about the millennial reign there are a lot of places in the Old Testament, but especially when you're reading in like Isaiah chapter 11, um, it gives us the idea that besides besides the curse of sin, or I'm sorry, the curse of death, uh, you know, death is not going to be done away with during the millennial reign because people are going to die. Uh, you know, Isaiah told us that if someone dies at 100 years old during the millennial reign, um, people are going to live so long uh, that that longevity, longevity of life is going to be restored to where if somebody dies at 100, it would be like them dying as an infant. So here's what's interesting, I think, is this. When you look at the, at the millennial reign of Jesus, 
besides, you know, there still being death, there seems to be a restoration of the earth and a restoration to mankind. Uh, like, for instance, I just mentioned it, that during the millennium, uh, m- people are going to live much longer than they do now. It appears that during the millennium, a lot of the effects of the effects that sin has had on mankind and the earth are going to be removed. And it's going to go back much like it was um, in the Garden of Eden. Now, all of that will be completely restored. You know, paradise lost will be paradise gained, you know, in the new heavens and new earth. We know that for sure. But there does seem to be uh, this this um, restoring of things um, close to back like they were before man sinned during the millennial reign. Now, I say that to say this. If that's the case, then let's go back before man sinned and you go back to when God created Adam. Here's the question. When God created Adam, how old was Adam? Well, we don't know, but we know this. We know that he was a man and it appears from scripture that obviously he was a full grown man uh, when God created him. So it appears that when God created Adam, that he created him as a full grown man in his prime. And uh, so I would have to say that if during the millennium, it appears that things are being restored back the way they were in the Garden of Eden before man sinned uh, to to kind of speculate on uh, like, how old will we be? Uh, how old will children be that have have left this earth, uh, you know, as, as children during the millennium? I would have to say they will be in the prime of their life, uh, taking that principle and going back and looking at Adam in the garden. Um, you know, we, we know that when God created Adam, he didn't create him as a baby and just lay him there in the, in the garden to fit for himself. He created him as a full grown man. And we see that. So I, I would I would kind of connect those two, you know, when I'm looking at the millennial reign and have to say that. uh that obviously it looks like that, you know, um, even all of us um, as believers, uh, you know, during the millennial reign, before that happens, we'll be taken into rapture. Um, when Jesus comes to rapture the church away and to resurrect all the dead believers, the Bible says this, uh, you know, John told us in First John chapter 3, it doesn't appear yet what we will be like, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. So we do know that we are going to share in the glory of Christ, which means whenever Jesus resurrects all the dead believers and raptures the living believers at that time, we're going to be given a body like Jesus' body, a glorified body uh, that will no longer be tempted by sin, uh, will no longer die. It will no longer be susceptible to, susceptible to the effects of sin, you know, like, you know, death and, and, and such. And so uh, I would have to say, and I'm, I'm going to make this connection too, John, um, I would have to say that that would be another connection to give us an idea about maybe how old we'll be or what we'll be like, um, is we, again, like I think you brought that up, Kay, is would we be like Jesus, you know? Um, and in the resurrection, yes, we will. We'll be just like him in the sense of having a body like his. So I would have to say we're going to be in the prime of our life. So Kay, does that help? It helps a great deal. It certainly does. I have a eight, um, well, she was eight months old when she um, went to heaven. That was uh, 43 years ago, you know, my daughter. So, but that's what I was believing. And I was just wondering if there was any scriptures um, 
about it, but it helps a great deal, and I do appreciate you. Thank you. Well, Kay, listen, thank you so much for the phone call. Thanks for the question. God bless you. And, um, you know, I, I don't, I do not know. In fact, I even said this yesterday in my teaching, uh, because I was, I was teaching about, uh, you know, where Simeon told, uh, Mary that a sword was going to pierce through her heart and nothing pierced her heart more than to watch her son being pierced on the cross for us and for our sin. And, you know, I made the point yesterday in church that I cannot think there's, there's nothing I can imagine on earth having to endure in this life, um, than outliving one of your children. And so our heart goes out to you. And I just want to, you know, uh, me and John both from the authority of God's word, just to say that, you know, uh, that, that your little one is with the Lord. And I, I believe that when you see your daughter again, you're going to see her as, as God meant her to be in perfect health, just like our Lord Jesus in her prime. And you know what? Uh, you're going to have all eternity uh, to spend with your Lord and with her. And I would just uh, encourage you to focus on that and just uh, be encouraged by the fact that uh, what's ahead of you is better than everything that you've experienced that's behind you. So I hope that's a blessing to you. <laughs> Thank so, you so much. And please keep me in your prayers. Uh, um, uh, my oldest son also passed away last year. He was 45. Uh, and so I have two children in heaven. And so if you can just uh, keep me in your prayers, I greatly appreciate it. And God, thank you for your ministry because you are helping to heal hearts and uh, edify the body. So I, I do appreciate you. Thank you. Oh, well, thank you, Kay. Kay, if you would stay on the line. Pastor John, would you pray for Kay right now? And I know the holiday season makes it even more difficult when you've lost someone. And could you just pray for Kay? Father, we thank you for Kay. And Lord, you know, Lord, what she's going through and Lord, what she's experiencing. And no doubt others who are listening in today could testify to that same experience. And Lord, your word says that you are the God of all comfort. So, Lord, we pray that you would provide the comfort through the work of the Holy Spirit, even now, Lord, as we are praying and all who are listening, praying with us for Kay and for others, Lord, bring comfort to their hearts. We thank you, Jesus, for the hope of heaven. Lord, what a reunion that's going to be. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, Kay, again, thank you so much, and God bless you, and uh, just uh, keep looking to Jesus and looking ahead because, again, uh, your future is going to be so bright and you're just going to get to enjoy all that time with your children. And it's going to be awesome. <laughs> and stay on the line if you would. Um, the folks at CSN there have some uh, things they'd like to give to you. And so let's go ahead and go back to the phone lines. And we have Angel from Nevada. Angel, welcome to, to Everman and Answer. Oh, <clears throat> I have a question concerning who the sons of God are in Genesis 6, 1 through 2. I've heard that they are demons intermarried with the daughters of men, but if the descendants were wiped out after the flood, then how did Goliath, his brothers, another giant still exist? Like, was it because of something in their genes or or something else? I wanted to hear your thoughts on that. That is a great question, Angel. And and we'll be honest with you. Uh, You know, there's there's different opinions when it comes to Genesis chapter 6 and it comes to the Nephilim and giants and all this. There's, There's different opinions about this. 
So, uh, John, what, how do you read the scripture there, especially in Genesis six? And, and, uh, what, what do you, how do you answer when he's asking about, you know, there were giants there in those days and then there were giants, uh, you know, later on in David's time? Right. Well, first of all, I want to just answer Angel's question by saying that there are two particular thoughts concerning Genesis chapter six. And I want to say that both of the responses, this isn't a salvation issue. I kind of want to preface that because sometimes people make Genesis six almost like it is whatever you think about Genesis six is going to determine your salvation. It does. <laughs> it's just something that, that is in the Bible. And there's two schools of thought on this. First of all, many believe that the sons of God refers to the godly line of Seth that intermarried with the ungodly line of Cain. And from this, they produced a, just a host of, of individuals that were wicked because the Bible does say that wickedness increased upon the earth in such a radical way to the point that God wiped it out and violence was on the earth. And the Bible also says, as it was in the days of Noah, so shall the coming of the son of man be. But the other thought concerning this is that they were demonic spirits that commandeered the souls of man and had relationships with women. And they produced somehow this ungodly line of giants or a hybrid progeny. And that's another reason. And then there are those that, that would, the reason why they say that is based on the book of Job. Uh, they quote scripture from there. First Peter chapter three talks about um, how there was a time when there was the spirits were placed in prison and they were formally disobedient and it connects it to the days of Noah. And so people think, I think that's referring to demonic spirits commandeering the souls of men and having these relationships and giants came forth. Jude is another passage, chapter one, verse six, where it says the angels that did not keep their proper domain left their abode. He's reserved in everlasting chains in darkness for the day of judgment on the great day. And people say that's that's what happened. What Jude is talking about is what happened with those angels back in Genesis chapter six, and they're waiting their judgment. So you say, well, well, what do you think about it, John? Here, here's what I know for sure. Here's what I know for sure. And again, you can side, uh, I have my own personal preference, but when here's what I believe. There was wickedness on the earth. And whether it was this or it was that, God destroyed the earth because of the violence and wickedness. And again, there are, there's both sides you can look at and, um, you could, and, and I would encourage you to do the study yourself and, and you're going to find, um, the information and you're going to be able to decide, um, what it says. I know Pastor Mike and I have answered this question together and he strongly believes that this isn't referring to demonic spirits. Um, but that it actually is referring to individuals and having a relationship uh, with the ungodly line and producing the offspring. But then there are others that disagree. In fact, men like, for example, Warren Wiersbe, who's a great commentator, he leans the other way, which I found surprising. But, you know, the bottom line is, uh, Scott, there was wickedness on the earth and God destroyed it. And um, and later on, there were giants on the earth. <laughs> so uh, that's it's a really good question, but that's kind of the the response that we usually give. Yeah, exactly. And, and that's the two main views um, right. you know, when it comes down to this issue. And John, I like what you really said that whatever we believe about it, it's not a salvation issue. It's not going to have anything to do with our eternity and where we spend eternity, which I think is great. Um, you know, I, I would throw this out. I, you know, and I know this, this thought probably goes down the line more uh, with what Pastor Mike has shared here uh, on To Every Man and Answer. But, you know, in Genesis 6, 4, if you look at that and read that carefully, it says there were giants on the earth in those days. So it's just making a point to say that in Noah's day, there were giants there. 
Now, the question would be, how could there be giants in Noah's day? Well, something you have to remember is after the fall of man, after Adam sinned and now the curse of sin is taking its toll on mankind and on the earth, what we see is as you go further in men, in man's history, um, you see men don't live as long as they used to. Um, and then what's also interesting is the reason for that, and, and you really see this pick up after the flood, and by the time we are given the law, uh, in the time of Moses, what you have is you have mankind physically um, begin to change in the sense that um, man's genes begin to change. Um, so what, what causes, um, you know, abnormal growth? And what causes uh, physically all all of these weird things um, in our bodies is what's called mutations. And mutations are literally mistakes in the genes. And so as mankind progressed in his history forward away from Adam and Eve, who God had created, uh, the original you know uh, couple that God created, man and woman, uh, that's where we all come from. And that's the source. That's that's the source of DNA. That's the source of human genes. Um, you know, God created them originally with no flaw because there was no death. There was there was, I mean, physically, okay, to say it this way, uh, physically they were perfect uh, in in their physicality. Um, but because of sin, mutations were introduced into the genes. Now you have mistakes and you have weird things like giants and things like that. It could be attributed to that. So what's interesting is in Genesis 6, 4, it says there were giants on the earth in those days. It's making that point. And also afterward. Now, when it says afterward, it's talking about after Noah's day. And so, you know, some would look at that and say, you know, all that Moses is doing as he's recording this is he's just making a fact to tell us that, you know, by the time of Noah's generation, that there were people who were large, there were giants and that even after the flood, uh, there were giants afterwards in Israel's history and in the history of man after that. And that's exactly what we see when we read the rest of the Bible. Now, if if that's actually the intent of what Moses is writing here, is he's just telling us, hey, there were giants in those days. And there were giants even after Noah's day, after the flood, when God started over, uh, started, you know, humankind over uh, with with um, Adam's sons or I'm sorry, with Noah's sons, uh, then we end up with giants again. So when it comes to this whole thing of the sons of God, you know, being demons and coming to the earth and mating with women, uh, you know, and, and all of that, um, if, if that is the case, I'm just throwing this out. Um, if that is the case, then you, you would think that that would have ended when the, when the flood came because God started over with Noah and his family. Um, so if the giants in Noah's day were the result, you know, of, uh, demons possessing men and, 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 and such, um, why do we see it after the flood, after God basically kind of cleanses the earth, you know, cleanses mankind of all that? Why do we see it again? Uh, unless it, again, like I said earlier, it's a mistake in the genes. So when you read Genesis 6, 4, that's another way to kind of read it and look at it like, oh, okay. Maybe what Moses is stating here is he's just telling us that there were giants then and then there were giants later. And maybe there is no connection uh, between that 
and the sons of God. So anyway, I hope that kind of helps. I hope I didn't make it more confusing. John gave you a great answer with giving you the, you know, the, uh, the, the two main views, uh, that people take that good Bible teachers take both of those views. Uh, but hopefully a little bit of what I added there about Genesis 6, 4 maybe helps out a little bit too, when it comes to understanding this. So anyway, did that help you angel? Yes. What you said about Genesis 6, 4 really made it made sense. Cause I remember reading that and I was like, wait, hold on. Does it mean that afterward, like just after the wickedness and then before the flood or was it after the flood? So as yes, I'm so glad you said, um, commented on that as well. Yeah, because exactly what you, what you observed is when we come, you know, in Israel's history, when they're trying, when they're coming into the land, you know, one of the, when, when the spies went into the, when the spies from Israel went into the land to check it out, they were like, well, we can't go in and take it because there's giants there. Well, this is all after Noah's day. So again, if the giants in Noah's day, are there afterward, but yet God, you know, cleansed humankind with the flood. Why do we see him again? Unless there's a physiological explanation to it. So, yeah, so I hope that helps. And we, we did our best with that. So anyway, Angel, thanks so, so much for the call and for calling us today. And if you would stay on the line and uh, the folks at CSN would love to uh, send you some books and uh, DVDs. So let's go ahead and go back to the phones. We have Joanne on the line from Kimberly, Idaho. Joanne, how can we help you today? Hello. Hello. You're on the you're Hi. on to every man and answer. Yes. Okay. Thank you so much for taking my call. Mm-hmm. Uh I had something happen uh almost twenty years ago that scared me and I'll tell you what it was. My dad was in uh intensive care in the hospital and I worked at the hospital. And I would go down on my break and see how he was doing. And this one particular time, I noticed he he had a look of fear on his face. And he looked toward the nurse's station. And me and my daughter, we said, is it something that the nurse's station is scaring you? And he'd shake his head. And he couldn't talk. He had a tube in his throat. But And then the next time we went down, he or I went down on a break, he was scared. And I had never seen my dad scared in my life. And I thought, there's a an evil entity that is making him fearful. And, I mean, this lasted a couple of days. And when I went down on, a, on one of my graveyard shift breaks, I said a prayer, I prayed in the name of Jesus, whatever you are that's making my dad fearful, go out of his line of vision. Don't let him see you in the name of Jesus. Mm-hmm. And after that, he did not have that look of fear, but I was terrified to say that prayer. But I thought it was biblical, and I just need some feedback. I mean, it worked. Okay. Well, Joanne, thank you for the call. We're actually out of time. There's the music, so we don't have time to answer the question for you. But if you will call back tomorrow, first thing, the folks there at CSN will try to get you on uh, at the beginning of the program so that you can uh, share that again and get an answer. And uh, I think Pastor John might be on tomorrow, so uh, he's heard your question, so maybe he could answer it for you if you'd give him a call. John, thanks so much for joining us today. You got it, brother. God bless you. Please call 1-800-357-4226.
or write us to Every Man and Answer, P.O. Box 391, Twin Falls, Idaho, 83303. That toll-free number is 1-800-357-4226. Subscribe to the free podcast on iTunes by searching for To Every Man and Answer in the iTunes store or visit us online at csnradio.com slash TEMA. To Every Man and Answer is a production of CSN International, the Christian Satellite Network. The opinions expressed by our guests may or may not be those of CSN International or of this station. 